fact that few residents and certainly fewer visitors would recognize the coat of arms of our city of Edinburgh. Literally, it means Nisi, unless, Dominus, Lord, Frustra, in vain. And the key word, just one word in Latin and one word in Hebrew, but two words in English, repeated three times in the psalm, is in vain. The word means empty, worthless, false. And the psalm forces us to face up to the frightening possibility that all that we've achieved in this life may, in the last analysis, prove to be a complete waste of time. In vain. So, I want us to read and reflect on this psalm together as we ask the question, which our city fathers originally, I'm sure, intended when this motto was chosen over 300 years ago, or more for the city of Edinburgh. In vain. The psalm is 127. It will help to have a Bible in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. You'll find it on page 624. Psalm 127. You'll see it's entitled The Song of Ascents. It's actually the eighth of 15 successive psalms if you just flick the page back, beginning at 120, right through to Psalm 134, each one of them says, a song of ascents. Uh, it's called that because people believe that these psalms were sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they ascended from all parts of Israel up to Jerusalem, the capital city, and then as they ascended up the steps into the great temple that was built there to worship the Lord. Songs of ascent. So let's read what it says and then we'll reflect on it. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, a son's born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Notice first of all, the background to this psalm. It's a background about, the background is that of human activity. And in particular, this human activity is centered on two universal preoccupations. That is, things that human beings focus on, worry about, are concerned about, no matter what culture uh, they belong to. Is this booming a little bit of feedback here? Are these mics off now? I'm just wondering if I'm getting some feedback from those two. That's fine. Okay, thank you. So these two universal preoccupations, 
Uh, the first of these you could call creativity. Look at the beginning. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labour in vain. The psalmist uses the verb build and the noun builders to describe what human beings do. The builders are building a house of brick, or maybe in those days mud, as still is the case in many parts of the world today. But the word house here has a broader meaning to encompass the family who live there, the occupation of the head of the house, or even an extended business. I suppose a parallel in Britain would be the house of Fraser, describing a rather large business empire. Now, in that sense, all of us here this morning are in the building business. For we are all builders. We all have the ability to create something, to make something with and of our lives. Something that is my creation. In his recent book entitled Creators from Chaucer to Walt Disney, uh, the historian and writer Paul Johnson begins his study of creative geniuses by asking a fundamental question, where does this creativity come from? This is what he writes in the first chapter entitled The Anatomy of Creative Courage. This is what he says, Creativity, I believe, is inherent in all of us. We are all the progeny of Almighty God. He says, God is defined in many ways, all-powerful, all-wise, all-seeing, everlasting, the lawgiver, the ultimate source of love, beauty, justice, happiness, but most of all is the creator. He created the universe and those who inhabit it, and in creating us, he made us in his own image so that his personality and capacities, however feebly, are reflected in our minds, bodies and immortal spirits. We are by nature creators as well. All of us can, most of us do, create in one way or another. We are undoubtedly at our happiest when creating, however humbly and inconspicuously. And one might add, we are at our most miserable when we have nothing to occupy us, nothing we can create, which is why unemployment is such an awful thing. doesn't mean that you have no money, does mean that, of course, but it means your life has little meaning. We are all, as Johnson puts it, however humbly and inconspicuously, we are designed, we are programmed, we are meant to be creators. One of the things that sets us apart, being made in the image of God. We are fulfilling a God-given ability. That's the first preoccupation, but not only that, creativity, a second thing follows from it. Security. We want to protect or preserve what we've created. Look at the verse again. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Now the image shifts from the home to the city. A city which needs to be protected by watchmen on the walls. Sentries on duty. Uh, the original reference is clearly to the great city of Jerusalem. When this psalm was written, you didn't need to tell the people of Israel that your livelihood, your future, all that you own is dependent upon those guys who march around the walls and stop enemies coming in and warn us of invaders. Otherwise, if they are asleep, your city may be invaded and all that you've built, all your wealth, all your home, even all your family may be wiped out in an instant. Now, 
Today's such images, of course, are replicated in a city like Edinburgh with its castle. I can only find a very fuzzy picture of the guards on duty at Edinburgh Castle. They are largely ceremonial, or maybe they're not, with today's threats from terrorism. However, all of us are not only in the building business, we're also, are we not, in the security business. We put our money in banks because we think that money is then safe. We take out insurance policies in case things go wrong. We do all we can to preserve what we have created. And not only that, we want to ensure a future for our families and maybe even make a name for ourselves so that after we are gone, people will look back and say, that person's life was worthwhile. They put their, their lives and energies into something lasting. So we watch over what we've created. We guard it from future threats. Now, that is the background. This is just the background to the psalm. Human activity centred on creativity and security. But now we come to the point of the psalm. We are warned that it is possible to invest all your lives in such things. And it may turn out in the end to be a complete waste of time. In vain. So, let's turn to our second theme and focus on this possibility, what I've called for ease of remembrance, if it helps you, just, if it doesn't annoys you, just ignore it, but potential futility. Look again at the opening verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, its, labors, its builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Notice, first of all, before we look at what it does say, notice what it doesn't say. It does not mean we shouldn't do anything. In other words, you read the psalm and say, well, unless the Lord does it, it's a waste of time. So I may as well just sit back and let the Lord do it. It's actually a problem for some of the early Christians. In the Greek city of Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul, the missionary who founded the church, wrote to them, and he didn't mince his words. He said, we hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. 2 Thessalonians 3:11-12. As Oliver Cromwell famously said to his troops, trust in God and keep your powder dry. So as we've seen, God intends us to work. He commends those who work, who create to preserve what they've created. But notice the second thing that the psalm does not say. It does not say that we cannot do anything. That we can't lay bricks or build cities and set guards. Because you say, well, only God can do these things. Clearly, it is obvious, people with total disregard to God. Some of you may be here this morning. You've built your life in total disregard of God. There are people who build empires. They die of old age in their beds without any reference to God. Clearly people do and are able to do these things. So what is the psalm telling us? Simply this, that what we create and what we secure will in the end prove to be futile unless the Lord is over it and in it. Unless, as it were, he is the chief executive of our lives. Stated simply, Unless the Lord is Lord, and notice the word, unless the Lord, it will all prove worthless. In the IVP commentary on Psalms, Derek Kidner writes, It is not simply that our projects will fail, but they lead nowhere. The house and the city may survive, 
But were they worth building? Or as a businessman once put it, I spent all my life trying to get to the top of the ladder. And when I arrived there, I found it was leaning against the wrong building. Nisi Dominus Frustra. And this is the message of this book, the Bible, which claims to be God's word, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Two examples. The writer of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which is a pretty pessimistic book, describes how he searched for everything in life, for wealth and riches, for wisdom, for pleasure. And this is the wise man's verdict. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 1-2. In the older version of the Bible, it was vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's not the same word that's used in the psalm here, but it conveys the same meaning. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, after 11 chapters, comes to chapter 12, verse 1, and he says, well, what's the wise thing to do? Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, made the point very clearly. In one of his famous stories, the parable of the rich fool, he told the story of a man who amassed all his wealth. He was so successful as a businessman that in the end he decided to knock down his empire, build bigger barns, and he said to himself, you have many things laid up for many years, take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. This is God's verdict. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Now I simply want to ask you, what may seem an alarming question and a rather depressing question to some people here on this particular Sunday. If God were to demand your life of you this day, if he were to open his book and say, this is your life, what would his verdict be on your life thus far? Would he say, you fool? Would all that you've proved to have done, all that you've done proved to be in vain. Now maybe you're not sure about this, so let me suggest that there are two little indicators in this psalm which will tell you the answer to the question. Okay, look at the psalm closely. You'll find them both in verse 2. Here's the first test. It's what you could call the food test. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat. The psalm speaks about people who burn the candle at both ends Toiling for food to eat. The literal translation is much more telling. It's a Hebrew expression. It says, you rise up early and you stay up late to eat the bread of sorrows. You know what the bread of sorrows is? It's when you've worked absolutely hard to achieve what you want. And when you've got it, you're still sad because it doesn't fulfill you in any way. It's getting that ideal holiday that you've always wanted. And halfway through it you think, I'm still not happy. It's getting that home that you've dreamed of. And when you move in after a week or two you think, there must be more to life than this. It's not just food, it's what we earn to try and satisfy ourselves. It's marrying that ideal person who's going to meet all of your dreams. And when you've married them, wonderful though they may be, there's still an empty aching in your life that only God can fulfil. So here's the first test. The food test. Are you satisfied this morning with your life? 
Or are you sad? Are you fulfilled or frustrated? There's a second test as well. These are the kind of things your doctor asks you, by the way, as well, when you go and you're feeling a bit down, you know. Okay, here's the second test, the sleep test. For he grants sleep to those he loves. So let me ask you another question. How well do you sleep? The psalmist tells us the Lord grants sleep to those he loves. Now, this does not mean if you can't sleep that God doesn't love you. There may be all sorts of reasons why you can't sleep. Uh, toothache is an example that springs immediately to mind. Now, the context is people who burn the candle at both ends because they're still consumed by human activity, they stay awake to try and create more and they're not able to sleep because they're so worried about what they've accrued that someone else is going to come along and steal it and will it really last? What the psalm tells us is if you live your life under God's direction, if you work hard with the hours that God has given you, put everything you can into it, you can then sleep soundly on the pillow of God's love, like the Lord Jesus Christ in a boat on a life-threatening storm, asleep on a pillow while the disciples were going hairless, saying, don't you care that we drown? Oh, you of little faith, said Jesus. And in that assurance, you can sleep soundly. And with another confidence, that one day you may well awake, not on earth, but in the Lord's eternal presence. And you'll awake with confidence in him, knowing that your life has proved not to be in vain. And I simply ask you this morning, how well are you sleeping? If someone put it, do what you ought to do and the Lord will take care of what you cannot do. Now, the great danger, I believe, for many of us, particularly those of us here this morning who are professing Christians, is not that we are work shy, but that we tend more towards the other extreme, to be workaholics. And when you're a workaholic, you know what it shows? It shows that you rely too much on what you do rather than on what God does. And perhaps that's why the psalm concludes in the second half with a third theme, which I want to call divine generosity. I've preached on this psalm before, those of you who keep records and can even check on their website. thought long and hard about this psalm this week and I've come to a different conclusion. Preachers sometimes do this and not always admit it, but okay, here's what I think what this psalm is really about at the end. It's about divine generosity. On a day uh, when we've given thanks for the birth of children to two families, the psalm focuses on such families. In fact, it focuses on large families. Do you notice? Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They'll not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Why does the psalm conclude by focusing on families? We've started looking at buildings and cities. Now, why the shift to families? Well, here's what I think at the moment. and I may change my mind in a few years as well. But anyway... First of all, I think the psalmist is emphasizing to us that God always chooses to work through people. You know what the greatest human building project ever was? Well, if you know the Bible, you'll know it was the building of a tower called the Tower of Babel. And you'll find it in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 11. How did it end? In frustration. 
It was raised to the ground, the people of the world were scattered. If you read Genesis 11, very interestingly, it begins with this great human enterprise that fails. How does it end? There's a little family in a pagan city called Ur of the Chaldees, run by a head of the house called Terah, and God calls his family to leave there and set out on a pilgrimage. And in that family is just one insignificant man who's called Abraham. And he becomes the father, not only of the nation of Israel, but through him all nations on earth are blessed. And you and I are here this morning, and Charlotte Chapel is here, and the Church of Jesus Christ exists, because God works through people, through families. But there may be a second reason for this focus on families. You see, you notice the human preoccupations are the same. It's still about creativity, only in this case creating children. It's also about security. Who's going to look after you in your old age? Well, if you've got lots of sons in that culture, when you come to the end of your life, they'll contend with you against your enemies and look after you in your old age, which is why people had such huge families in those days. To care for them. But you see, the birth of children and families is the ultimate example which proves the point. Human beings can build homes and protect cities without God's help, but only God can give life. You see, the focus on families reminds us that this is the way only God can work. See what it says in verse 3? Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. It's very helpful. If you want some stimulating reading, a chapter a day for 15 days, there's a book by Eugene Peterson, the the American uh, pastor and uh, writer, on the Psalms of Ascent. It's called The Journey. I think it's probably still in print. I hope so anyway. And this is what Eugene Peterson writes. In contrast to the anxious labour that builds cities and God's possessions, the psalm praises the effortless work of making children. Opposed to the strenuous efforts of persons who, in doubt of God's providence and mistrust of God's love, seek their own gain by godless struggles, is the gift of children, born not through human effort, but through the miraculous process of reproduction which God has created among us. He concludes, The entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what you'd call work. We did not make these marvellous creatures that walk and talk and grow among us. We participated in an act of love which was provided for us in the structure of God's creation. So God's generous gift of children provides future security. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, a son's born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They'll not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. But before that, parents have a present responsibility. Why? Because arrows don't grow on trees. Wood grows on trees, and the wood has to be shaped to make arrows if they're to be effective and achieve the purpose of the man who makes them, or the woman. Kidner again comments, It's not untypical of God's gifts that first they are liabilities or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. The greater the promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they're a quiverful. To which some of us say, Amen. So, parents have a responsibility to discipline children to help to shape their lives. I remind the families this morning in every family to train them for future usefulness. If we fail in this, then as the old commentator Matthew Henry puts it, arrows in the hand become arrows in the heart. So this psalm reminds us that children are a gift from God, a sign of his blessing. Now again, this is not a general principle. 
If you're not married or you have no children, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. There are those God calls to singleness. There are those the Bible describes very movingly who suffer the pain of childlessness. But there is a wider extension here beyond natural children. Who do we worship this morning? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was single and despite the Vinci Code nonsense about him having children, had no physical children. Yet the book of Hebrews tells us that by his obedience and suffering and death, he brought many sons to glory. Hebrews 2 verse 10. So also Christians, these sons and daughters, we are called to spiritual reproduction. To relationships which go deeper than even physical relationships. With physical family. We may not have any physical children or brothers and sisters, but we belong to a vast family of God who are children of God through faith in Christ. So how do you become fruitful? Well, Jesus told us in that wonderful illustration of the vine and the branches, which doesn't mean a great deal to us in our culture, but did in the day in which he spoke. Here's the key to spiritual fruitfulness. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Can you not see? It's the same message. Unless the Lord, Jesus, apart from me, you can do nothing. In intimate relationship with Jesus, our lives can fulfill the purpose God intended so that when we leave this life, we'll not look back and say, what a waste, it was all in vain. Rather, we leave behind us a lasting legacy. Even spiritual children, the Apostle John, right at the end of his life in that little letter 3, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 3 John 4. And their influence is seen not only in our lifetime, but beyond, not only in our locality, but those that we influence can have an influence to the ends of the earth. St. Augustine, speaking from this verse, spoke of spiritual children shot forth like arrows into the world. Spiritual children shot forth like arrows into the world. And as Christians... We can all be spiritual parents. Can I suggest to you that's an investment well worth making so that at the end your life is not in vain. So, conclusion. This psalm raises a question, the question in vain. It's a question to cities and nations. It raises a question to our city. Some of you know that, uh, uh, I think it was last year, I was invited to go and lead the prayers of our city council. And I didn't really know what to say. So I went to the council chamber and I simply stood up and said, can I just remind you of the motto of our city? Unless the Lord, what you do is in vain. And was able to pray with the councillors. I've been invited back again, I'm not sure what that means, but uh, I felt it was my responsibility. It's a message to nations. I found a wonderful quote here. And friends here from America this morning? I'm sure there are lots of friends here from America. Here's a speech given on June the 28th, 1787, by 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin. You know, the great American inventor. The convention was called to form a constitution for the United States. Let me read some of you. It's rather old-fashioned language, but listen carefully to what he says. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and we were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favour. 
To that kind providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived for a long time, 81 years. And this is what Benjamin Franklin says, The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible or probable that an empire can rise without his aid? And here's what he concludes. We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall proceed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. A challenge to the USA. A challenge to Britain. What are we building? But the psalm also finally asks a question to individuals. What is the verdict on our lives? Is it in vain? That's why I chose the, uh, to ask David and Cameron to read that wonderful story that Jesus told. It's a story about builders, wasn't it? Jesus said there were two builders. One of them built on rock, one built on sand. Great storm came along. One was raised to the ground, the other one stood firm. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is the wise man who builds his house on the rock. You can sit in Charlotte Chapel this morning, hear my sermon, you can hear sermons every week, you can read this book every day, you can listen to every one of our sermons on tape, and in the end, you can be a fool and your life can be in vain because you've heard it, but you ain't put it into practice. There is a sad postscript to this psalm, and this really is the end of what I want to say this morning. Did you notice at the beginning, just look again, a song of ascents of Solomon. Scholars are not sure whether this psalm was written for Solomon, maybe by King David, his father, before his son became king, or whether it was written more likely by Solomon. Either way, there's a close link with Solomon. There's also a close link in verse 2. For he grants sleep to those he loves. Before Solomon was born, the prophet Nathan, the one who faced David up with his sin and his adultery and murder, came to David and said, you're going to have a son. He's called Solomon, but he's going to have another name. Jedidiah, which means beloved by the Lord. It's the same word and phrase that's used here to describe the one whom God loves. So Solomon is a privileged child loved by God. And if you know the Bible, you'll recall that Solomon made a promising beginning. He was allowed to build this glorious temple to the Lord. The Lord appeared personally to him and he promised great blessing on Solomon and his nation. But he also issued warnings to Solomon if he was to depart from the Lord and his word. And they were warnings that Solomon sadly ignored in his later years. His building projects became disastrous. His kingdom ended up as a ruin. And his multiple marriages to foreign women were an absolute disaster so that shortly after his death, the nation of Israel was torn apart in two and a once great empire was never brought back together again because this man ended up a life lived in vain. A tragic ending. There's a sad postscript. See, it's not just a... It's not just important to have nice dominus frustra over the motto of our city or even our lives. You must put it into practice. 
And I simply ask you this morning, have you? Have I? That is the question Psalm 127 asks each of us to consider this morning. Is it all in vain? Let's pray together.